0: And we're running. Not literally, obviously. Figuratively running.
1: Okay, so um, we're still in the same room, for anybody who heard the bit that we just recorded and put on the beginning of the first one. And we're still in my kitchen around a table, and we're still two faintly middle-aged blokes talking about books. I
0: mean, just to point one thing out quickly, and this is something that people tend to... Forget because their their stereotypical idea of people who are did in, di- into digital is basically the um, you know the asshole pundit writing yeah. for Wired. Yeah, um, people who are so absolutists uh, and so extremely digital that they are against anything uh, analog whatsoever. Mm. Um, but the problem is that if you actually uh, look at people who are in the field, whether it's web development or uh, app development, or just the wide ranging field of, of making digital things, you will find mm-hmm. that people, or, or, or a vast majority of them, really like physical things as well. Um, it's not an either or question. You uh, sort of one of the um, one engineer that i know who's is a database engineer and um uh an excellent writer and one of her hobbies is fountain pens and just writing with fountain pens is just glorious thing just really enjoying the glorious tactility of of using a fountain pen on good paper mm. and the, the same thing is here is that even though we're um digital people we um have a scary uh, scary uh, you know love of printed books yeah. even though mm. we are also, um, by virtue of our profession, obsessed with the whole digital thing mm. as well. It's not an either-or question. One does not have to lose for the other one to survive.
1: Completely, no, I completely agree. Yeah, this is this is, a, and whatever we end up calling this, that uh, we're interested in what we're interested in mapping the landscape. We're interested in trying to say something about where this is now, and that will inevitably lead toward the future, lead toward what we think you're doing wrong. Um, <laughs> what we think you could do better what we think that spoiler alert, you're doing a lot of things wrong. Yeah. You know things right as well. And that's something that doesn't get talked about. But anyway, but yeah, so there's the this is generally focused on understanding our understanding of a very complex industry. And we accept that. And a complex industry that has a relationship with digital that is still being figured out and still being formed. But we're trying to help. We're trying to kind of give you or give a sense of from an academic practical making, do as we do, don't do as we say thing about this is what we believe. So um, on that note, um, what we want to talk about today, this afternoon, is how did we get here? So not talk about the future as much, but talk about the past a little bit and talk about things that I think... Some of you will know and some of you will have heard already and certainly heard us talk about before. But to try and bring this into a kind of half hour, this is what we think. This is what we... This is These are our markers in the last 50, 60, 100 years of development um because the thing that we tried one of the things we said last time was that digital isn't new digital has been around for a while and the manners in which we use digital the way we the ways in which we understand it as a form to be engaged with and to work with are not new in the slightest the technology is new the technology can be can be kind of distracting in that respect because it becomes a novelty and it becomes a a thing that that it's all surface and show and, and not content but actually what is incredibly useful incredibly essential is to look back, is to to figure Mm. out where this came. So there is no plan for this. This is just going to be a conversation. But um, where do you want to start?
0: Well, I want to start with the tweet that that somebody uh, the other day uh, made a retweet from an Alan Kay paper that he wrote in, I think, the early 80s or late 70s. And he said, uh, was talking about the impact of pervasive computing on education and on youth. Yeah. Because that was his thing. Because it, even at the start of, of um, if people don't know who Alan Kay is, he's basically the guy who was in charge of the Xerox Park research uh, facility. And they invented basically a uh, in, uh, computer, uh, sort of window, uh, use visual um, computing. They invented the win- windows. They invented the idea of, um, the windowed environment that later inspired the Mac and Windows, they um, the they, 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 they coined it the uh, Windows icons, menus, pointers mm. as WIMP the as the paradigm yeah. that dominated desktop mm. computing. So he's a very smart man, yeah. and uh, his idea was that to make that so that, that environment, uh, um, it would be an um, the, the reason to make this everything visual. You needed. It was a way of making the abstract more concrete in a visual way. And um, he talked about the effect of pervasive computing and this always-on effect. He was writing about this more than 30 years ago. Mm. And he made this point uh, in a single, um, I think it was a footnote in, uh, in his paper, saying that it's that it, it was likely that um, in the future, one of the first things that teens would would uh, the first experiences of teens installing something on their computers would be a filter that blocked advertising. If you
1: want to know why he was a smart man, that's exactly why he was a yeah. smart man. I mean, it,
0: and it <laughs> sort of uh, my response to that is that the history of computing is the history of Alan Kay being right and of us ignoring what he says.
1: Yeah, completely. Absolutely. Um, Okay, I don't have a response to that. uh, (laughs) No, (laughs) not because, but I think there isn't necessarily a response. There are are people that we will probably touch on, um, Doug Engelbart, Ted Nelson, who always should be mentioned in this field in a very respectful manner. But I guess for me, what's one of my we said last time this would be actually a series of podcasts about what irritates Tom um, <laughs> which now this is going to be a series of podcasts about what irritates Tom is okay I can loftily say I can kind of sit at my table I can sit in front of students I can do whatever I want to do and say that there is nothing new about digital there is nothing new under the sun about the kind of ways in which we make work
0: Yeah,
1: um, and that's true and not true it's, it's not true in that the technology changes it there are things that are easier things that are way to do it but in term, what I'm saying really is, in terms of modes of interaction, modes of dealing with a text, dealing with a content, dealing with something, it has pretty much been done before. And what we're doing is doing it new. We're doing it. We're doing. Our, it's 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 a writer's, a creator's job to invent things again, yeah, to figure out a different way of telling the same story, a different way of engaging the audience, but to give them something different, to give them something new. And so, for me, what I think, are my markers for why we're sat here and why we're talking about this are people like B.S. Johnson, people like Mark Supporter, um, and to go a little further back, people like Dennis Wheatley, um, who is generally known for kind of, I'm going to denigrate the memory of Dennis Wheatley for hammer horror knockoff novels. Oh, yes. that my father had a collection of these, which is no kind of judgment on my dad. Um To you know, to the Devil a Daughter, these kind of this this kind of sub genre of writing, essentially kind of occult pot boilers. That Wheatley, Mo- Re- but
0: he, al- f- he already sounds awesome. He, he,
1: he, <laughs> was, he was awesome. He was amazing, and he, you know, he he predates the kind of pan collections of horror by yeah. a number of years, by several decades. But Wheatley, I found I didn't find I you know, didn't I was suggesting that these were lost but one of the things I found about Wheatley um, several years ago was that Wheatley wrote interactive fiction Ooh. Wheatley wrote these things I'm going to call them things because there's no other way to describe them and certainly when I'm talking about um, or trying to describe that there, there's nothing new under the sun he wrote these these murder mysteries in which um, the detective's name was J.G. Lynx and they were called the J.G. Lynx Mysteries unless I'm very wrong and somebody will correct me and they came as a dossier in their first editions, they came as a dossier of materials that um, pertained to a crime. So, you know, a murder has been committed. So
0: you're saying that these were interactive fiction, but they were an analogue book thing. Yeah, they're like, So you got a printed dossier.
1: You have got a printed dossier, which ah. con- which contained... I mean, and this, this in terms of fiction, this is why, you know, for me, it is the thing... This goes back to the... This is back to pre-Austin. It's, yeah, yeah. This is before Pride and Prejudice. This is the form of the novel, and the novel as an epistolary form. The novel is a form that kind of... One of the, my very clumsy phrases about the novel is that one thing that Jane Austen did with Pride and Prejudice was she wasn't the first to do it, but it was to write a novel that kind of had the backbone to say, "I'm a novel. I have I have a beginning, a middle, an end. I have characters, and I'm going to be believable. You're going to you're going to have faith in me. You're going to go with me on this story." Because before that, there are whole different ways to describe this, and around that time, you know, the epistolary novel, a novel written as diary, a novel mm. written as a collection of um, police reports, and this is how. Jickel and Hyde starts um, a novel. So Dracula starts as Jonathan Harker's diary. That the novel has the novel is a collection of papers found in my grandfather's attic.
0: It's an novel masquerading as something else. It's not as it, it's, because it's it's um, oh. um I think, probably not until the Gothic novels that they really started to go like yeah hang on we're just this thing, we're just telling a bloody we're story telling a story
1: we're telling the story and we're telling the story and we figured out ways to tell a story it means we don't have to disguise it because Heart of Darkness brilliant yeah. brilliant astonishing book is what gets called a club story it's a story being told by gentlemen in a club about something that happened to something else so yeah. it's a shaggy dog story that's being told about a friend of a friend it's the urban legend um but yes yeah, so what Wheatley did was nothing new because that idea that you know fiction doesn't need to be a novel fiction doesn't need to present itself you know goes back decades if not centuries yeah but yeah he presented these things as dossiers of material so what you did there wasn't a through there is a through narrative but the, what you read is a through narrative you read all the evidence and you formed your own opinion, your own decision as to who the murderer was, as to what happened, as to what really went. And in the back of the dossier, there's an envelope.
0: Yeah.
1: And the envelope, when you buy the thing, is sealed. Oh, so the, yeah, the the actual you know who who done it, so who done it, and, and, and you never have to open them if you don't want to. You can yeah. read the whole thing. And I've seen first editions where the, the envelope is still sealed, <laughs> and they've clearly been read. They've been thumbed through. They've been yeah. every, every page has been kind of opened and folded and put back together again. But they've but. The enjoyment is not necessarily about revealing the killer. It's, it's it's a game of Cluedo without wanting to know who did it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the mechanic is there, and, the, and obviously that's playful. Obviously, you know, I just invoked Cluedo. They, they they call back to a kind of um, a game mechanic, a play mechanic yeah. in there.
0: But it's it's playful without having the structure of a game, yeah. which is which is you know sort mm. of kind of the reason why I had it interesting.
1: Yeah, it, it it's immersive in that you have to do something. Mm. So it's to use a phrase that gets overused occasionally it's ergodic which (laughs) which, um, we'll do one of these where boulders ramps for an hour about ergodic literature
0: yeah when it's um, my turn to be annoyed at things mm -hmm. instead of tom yeah um so they're
1: that and so um they are a set of principles about ways to write fiction that i think you know the work that i generally make you know calls back to that kind of idea of work the work that you don't it's interactive without you realizing you're interacting it's immersive because of the what you do within it, which every bit of fiction does. Every bit of good storytelling is immersive. Yeah. Um, and this is, a, you know, there's a whole argument there about books and not books and what books do. You, but, so Wheatley did this, and th- this was in the 1930s.
0: Yeah, that's a good while ago.
1: It's a long, 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 long time ago. And my, my joy at finding this out was not just because it kind of reinvented a figure that was kind of looming in my childhood because these books <laughs> were always there, but it goes, actually, this is really interesting because... There is a, there is a tendency and a temptation to always think that the now is important, yeah. and that what oh, we have in front of us is the be all and end all.
0: And mm. it's sort of um, the the temptation to cast or uh, cast um, everything as being completely new, newly invented, without yeah. building on or learning from the mistakes of the past. Yeah, because there is no past, so how can you learn from it? Ooh. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's sort of if you if you if you ignore the, you, existential philosophy. Yeah, you know, no. I mean, it's sort of we're having a bit of a role reversal. You're you're, you're being the grump who is annoyed at things, and I'm coming up with the theoretical bullshit. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, completely role reversal. Yeah, um, so yes, yeah, so, so Wheatley sits there in I think it's like 1937, 1938, and writes this stuff. Um that kind of appear and disappear and that there's a... Re- you can probably get a copy of a reprint edition that comes as a half-out book, still with the envelope that was yeah. remade in the 1980s. But what then, for me, becomes interesting about the history of how we engage with media, with media is... And we touched on this last time in terms of the avant-garde and not the avant-garde, but a kind of modernist idea of the world and a mm. modernist perception of the world is that I think one of the things that drives a lot of digital media at the moment, a lot of digital creators, um, is not a kind of postmodern. let's throw the whole, everything in the kitchen sink at it but, it, but striving to make something and to make work that feels like it has a purpose. Yeah. Like there's a reason for it to exist and you're trying to do something, you're trying to prove a point or prove there's a way of telling a story. And for me, that's, to get theoretical bullshit again, <laughs> um, and where i roll, turn the reversals back, it's a kind of, almost a sort of neo-modern idea it's a sort of response to the the kind of the abundance of text and of intertext and of referential text that that postmodernism embodies and that we kinda go down to transmedia and we go to alternate reality games and the ways in which they work. And to kinda must go there's a sort of purity of vision, the modernism whether you're a futurist, whether you're a surrealist, that you there's a thing that you're trying to do and that that is is a manifesto, a set of principles that guides your work and guides your whole reason for making this stuff and making whatever it is that you do mm. and that for me is when the things start to get interesting but
0: mm. well, it's it, it ties in with uh, I remember uh, years and years ago back when I was studying literature um, and I was um, arguing with a lecturer uh, he was um, presented the history of at least um, literary criticism as a cycle between um, formalism and Romanticism. Mm-hmm. You you went for uh, it. It never repeated itself exactly, but it rhymed. You had a focus on how on the structure of things, or of its of the purpose of the thing itself, or in and of itself. Yeah. And uh, how you made it, and then it switched over to the context of the thing, which were you know, which either romanticised the author or the or the surrounding or the culture, mm-hmm. and it circled back and forth. And uh, obviously, me being young and stupid, I was arguing against him, and basically sort of uh, I was trying to present that uh, the history was either you know more complicated or, or more simple than uh, than, uh, than it really is. Then, of course, I realised that he was completely right and that postmodernism is, is the part of the cycle that focuses extensively on that meaning that resides outside of the work. Mm. It resides in the discourse between culture and the work. And we're getting back to, and it's kind of obvious in the way that you see people talking about uh, the work they do, is that they're, they're switching back to talking about the actual structure of the thing, the purpose of the thing, the the, the role of the... Um, story or the uh, the app or thing or, or how it works and how that uh, that uh, how meaning comes from that mm. and we are I think it's a, 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 we're overdue because obviously the truth is always going to be somewhere in between mm. but when you focus too much on one side like we have with postmodernism and poststructuralism over the past like it's dominated for fifty years mm. um, or you know maybe not fifty years but let's... It, Let's just say that I've got a dog-eared copy of *Against the Method* uh, by uh, Feierabend, which my dad read when he when yep. he was in college, and you know that, so we're, we've been uh, we're, we've been skewed on that side for way too long. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we need a bit of a, a bit of balance in the discourse. And it's also I like it because it's more productive. You you with postmodernism and poststructuralism, you you, you don't get really get any clues on how to do things in the in the discussions. It's all a bit. Self-involved and contextual, and and talk about authors and you know adoration of of other work, and the only thing you learn from that is how to make references to Battlestar Galactica in your work or something like that. Um, <laughs> yeah. But well, what you, well, but well, at least with the when you start when you switch to the other side, you start seeing people talking about uh, like uh, how do you, how do you build up a scene? How do you mm. how do you well, well, you know what what role does the act structure have to play mm. in games? For example, we um, yeah, know, which is like you, know, you put a bunch of game developers together and uh, you know ask them, you know, well, you know, what role do does the act structure have in the uh, 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 sort of in the way that you structure games, and you would probably be able to keep them going talking for about hours on end. Mm. Probably help help it along if you add, add a few beers, but um, it's uh, I like that I like the fact that we're switching back because, and I say switching back because this is where. This is where computing really took off, is mm. where if we go back to um, Alan Kay's work, which I to, uh, sort of men- uh, mentioned earlier, in that the way they designed um, Smalltalk and the way they structured it so that it tried to make abstract things concrete. Smalltalk
1: is a programming language.
0: Yeah, yeah. Add, this is the, this is the mm. thing that's so great about it. Smalltalk is a programming language and a windowing environment and an operating system all at the same time. And what they did is that they they, that, um, um, they had the, when you're interacting with it, it's everything in, in a, a in a, a windowing environment. When you're using a mm. desktop uh, or a laptop, it's you're basically interacting with icons and menus, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, and each icon and each menu, uh, menu uh, sort of each menu represents objects mm-hmm. um, visually. Represent objects. Yeah. The thing, the the clever thing about Smalltalk is that um, the programming language is structured around objects. And the the visual representation of the of, of those objects are their visible concrete on the screen, yeah. and uh, the way that the reason why they invented things like the right click. Uh, the contextual menu yep. is that that was a way that you could use to click on an object and see what messages it could receive in the programming language. Right. And mm-hmm. uh, so it was it was a way of making the programming language and the visual environment and the OS all completely integrated and transparent to each other yep. and obvious mm-hmm. to the user. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was it, it, it it's a it's a f- absolutely fundamentally structural uh, idea of approaching things where you mm-hmm. just think about. The, this, that the structure itself has meaning and uh, making it cohesive and connect to each other and that somehow just got completely lost when it got translated into Windows and, and Mac OS because they separated the two things they separated out the vi- the visual representation mm-hmm. and the underlying structure and they uh, and they even t- uh, sort of today it's almost a virtue separate content from representation Yeah, mm-hmm. um, but it's you know it's not necessarily always always there so. it's not necessarily always going to be the best route to go but yeah it's sort of small talk you could sit down there and, and just read about small talk for mm weeks and you keep on just coming up with the, with clever things that they did mm. both conceptually and um, uh, both in terms of structure and concept, and in terms of practice like the the fact that one of the one of the ways that they tried to advance um, the, you know iterate on the system was that they basically got in a bunch of kids on a regular basis and told them to make software really yeah and it's just uh, had workshops with with uh, school children um, you know, just make software, and they'd ask them about tasks that they had to do at school. And they'd basically Okay, let's make, uh, let's, uh, let, let's help you make software that helps that problem. Right. <clears throat> and at the, before the end of the workshop, the kids were making their own applications because, the, as, I, uh, as I said earlier, there was a, such a, um, a conceptual unity between the programming language and the environment. So just by exploring the environment visually, you got a sort of um, experience, uh, the experience fed into your understanding of the programming language, which made it less abstract and more concrete.
1: There's a just this is the second one of these that we've done. Um, but one thing I'm thinking about because you, I think in patterns, I overthink too much, I think far too much about things anyway. One of the <laughs> things I'm thinking actually, that I was about to kind of ramble onto an anecdote about using children in, in development of projects because no, no no not at all in that respect. But the there's a kind of there's a clarity of vision that comes with it. So yeah. one of the one of the ways in which I've been funded before is public funding. So if you pay your taxes in the UK, thank you very much indeed. Um if you didn't, just please pay your taxes. If you're Vodafone, pay your taxes. God's sake. Um If you're Amazon, just you Get lost.
0: Um, well, you know, you know sort mm. of. Uh, at least in Amazon's case, they're spending the money somewhere. Right. That's the only reason why they're not using loopholes. They're literally just spending the money so that they don't uh, don't make any profit.
1: That is true. Anyway, public funding, which is brilliant and wonderful, and there are ways to do it. We were, um, I was funded three years ago to make a piece of work, um, which I'm sure will come up at some point, which people will know before or not know before, but what the funding body that was administering this funding I wasn't talking abstracts here because I want to get Jo Lansdown in hello Joe, um, <laughs> to come and talk and tell his story properly because she's brilliant and talks about this kind of stuff was there was a point at which they wanted to make a series of projects about play Ooh. that were themes so the way we were funded was a, a stream of projects that funded eight projects around books and print inevitably mm. um, and this particular this React Hub, um, it's called have funded about 50 or 60 projects over five years but the, the play series and Joe told me this story I'm not quite sure, I, I keep repeating it I'm not quite sure how true it is is that the, tr- the traditional way you apply for funding is you fill out a you fill out a budget and you fill out a project proposal that you know bears very little relation to what you're going to make anyway mm-hmm. because it's going to be iterative you're going to kind of figure this out as you go along but you have to say something and your budget is going to change but there's a thing that you're anchored to and that there's a robustness about that and that process of awarding funding is about how much they trust you because they're giving you they're giving you the public's money to yeah. make something and for the play sandbox the play series what they they turned the whole thing on its head and I think um, maybe it's because it was the last one of the four or five or six that they've done in these big series of public projects but play was the last one and instead of requiring each applicant organization to come up with a budget and come up with a planning proposal, they actually took them on a two day workshop oh. And yeah. so you're going to work with children. <laughs> and they were very, very kindly given um, use. So I think it's a National Trust property outside Bristol for the weekend. And you, you came with a project idea. You came with a notion. You came. You were not come with a blank sheet of paper. You had a thing you wanted to do. But in effect, what they were doing by having children become part of your workshop, part of your experience for that weekend, was getting kids to determine who got the funding. Ooh. In, a, in Not in and the, the way I keep describing it is it makes it sound more important it's not that the children had a defining vote or deciding vote on yeah. this but, but your interaction with your end user yeah. the way in which you could describe this and kind of win people over was fundamental to whether you were funded whether you got the project got to make the project going forward and I thought that was just incredible there was something really rich about that about changing about going back to first principles and saying that there Maybe. is something you can make it better
0: and also making sure that um, the, the end end audience is valuing what you do. doing. Yeah, I mean, it's, because it's very easy to go get off track, and you, you make a project that the people involved all like, but when you actually throw it out to the public, yeah. they go like, what? yeah. If I, you're lucky, they're they're gonna they're gonna say, I don't understand that. Yeah, most of the time, they're just gonna be like, uh, what what thing. Yeah. You did something I oh, didn't notice, and therein lies a the history of almost every project we could talk about.
1: But and I'm not I'm not suggesting that that means that they had six incredibly successful projects because they took this radical approach. I'm just mm-hmm. thinking that there is something really clever and really interesting about trying that at the start yeah. and saying this is how we're going to go about this, and we're going to turn the traditional model on its head just this once because we can see some benefit in doing that. Um,
0: well, that's sort of I mean the the standard practice in in well. Um, I say standard practice. It's standard practice with people who know what they're doing, um, which doesn't mean they're standard practice with everybody in the field. But it's standard practice with uh, within uh, app development of doing user testing um, early on, very uh, and literally where they start testing things before you actually make anything. Mm-hmm. They do paper prototypes where you just yeah. like you know you know put a put a printout of a screen in front of you and say you know what do you click and you, yeah. I click that and they just you know <laughs> literally just sort of like mock up the entire thing and um, that. You'd be amazed at how much completely idiotic things get sur- surfaced, just when you put it in, in front of a you know any random stranger. Mm-hmm. They go like, click on that, and go, no, that's not clickable, but it looks like a button. <laughs> it, it, it looks like a button. Why can't I get a click yeah. that? And they go like, yeah, oh, but uh, yeah, okay, I, I see what you mean. Uh, yeah. It's sort mm-hmm. of it's a way of sort of surfi- it's sort of because. Uh, Writers can relate to this, hmm. um, but when you 're working on something that uh, that you need to focus on so intensely, like um programming or software hmm. or design and and writing, you tend to lose sight of the big picture and you you, 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 you so and end up being incapable of spotting you know. Glaring flaws because they're just you're just standing next to them. You don't yeah. have the perspective mm. on it, and that's why it's sort of um, um, I mean, with writers they they tend to have either editors or a group of beta readers to sort of surface those flaws. But in in software, you absolutely need that mm. that sort of thing as well. You need yep. test to test things early on to make sure that you don't ship things that are then just completely indecipherable. Yes, and mm. it's clear that's not standard practice. You know, generally, in the software industry, because they keep shipping things that are completely indecipherable. Mm. <laughs> but it's yes. you know, mm. Apple <laughs> a mess. Mm. Um, And it's sort of, um, uh, but yeah, if you're doing, the, doing a good job, that's what you're trying to do. Um, mm. You know, of course, they make it difficult, but um, yeah, um, yeah. Well, yes. yeah that's, that's the point I was trying to make is that we, you should, yeah, but uh, how do we get there? You know, how did we did we get to that point, and, um, and where do we go from here in yeah. this conversation? Yeah, and which happens back to the uh, topic, which was how did we get there?
1: Well, the next—I mean, the next person to bring up, because this is turning into a sort of potted history of people we admire, people we think are interesting—is for me, it's Ted Nelson. Yeah, um, yeah, mostly because he's insane in a brilliant, brilliant kind of mad scientist. Christopher Lloyd could learn so much.
0: Yeah, well, he's the from, mad scientist that computing yeah. needed absolutely, and
1: and and was. Don Quixote was tilting at windmills yeah. before we realised there were digital windmills to tilt at. Or was going to say about that? Um, but one of the things that I'm consistently, aside from you know Ted's tendency to make vaporware and to make things that can kind of never get made, and <laughs> yeah. but there, there is a there is he's a, not project
0: manager. Let's
1: just he's put it not, that not project manager. <laughs> no, Ted is not Ted. Love Ted. He's not a project manager. But there is a there's a kind of clarity of vision. There's something I used to talk. Sorry, this ends up being say things I used to say to students. The other thing with this. Is that what we have, when we talk about how did we get here, what we have is often not what was envisaged. Yeah. And not what was planned for, and what was described. Um, and the history of digital media, as with every medium, is a kind of, a, a, a history of compromise, a history of market forces, of economics, of a whole set of things that were never envisaged when, by the people who were designing this stuff in the first place. Yeah, or later. many of
0: them end up being bitter, bitter people as a oh, result. Oh God, yeah, hugely, and... Um, and let down by history
1: and let down by history and this is one of the for me it's one of the, the very refreshing things about a medium that although we say yes this goes back decades if not longer but a lot of the people who are instrumental in this are still alive or, oh, yeah. or who have only recently passed um, in the case of a few people or who are as you mentioned last time some of the pioneers are still working or not working and that's a crime um, but Ted I've, you and I have both seen Ted Nelson talk about mm. Ted's vision for hypertext and Ted's vision I For people who don't know Ted Nelson, you know, there's a history of projects that never came to fruition, projects that are justly or unjustly kind of reviled or looked at for a kind of lack of rigor in their execution. But he he practically invented hypertext. He invented the protocol. Well, he invented the word. Invented the word, absolutely, invented many of the protocols that we now come to take for granted. And yeah. that's a building block for the web. And he had a, he had a vision of a very different way of interacting, a very different way of dealing with digital technology than we do today. And not that there are fundamental changes, but there are shifts. There are things that I think um the more I think about this, the more I think about kind of the where what we have is that at the root of it, what we have we said last time that you know one of the problems with ebooks is that they are a, they're a parody of a book they're a, they're the book under glass they're hived off from the print version yeah and what we get is a kind of facsimile and a poor facsimile of a of a print book that's trying to behave like a print book and it's not it shouldn't do that but
0: well, and just to make sure that even the reflowable ebooks which the publishing industry thinks is like cutting edge and yeah. being digital and we're going yep. you know re- really supporting the Features of the medium. Mm-hmm. Now we're talking about not not in terms of of the you know fixed page ebooks, books They're replicating the um, the actual visual representation, but even reflowable ebooks They're replicating the structure of a book, mm-hmm. uh, and they're copying the structure of the book exactly from the printed object. Yeah. you know they, they are exactly the same thing, just with resizable text. Mm-hmm. And the resizable text on its own does not make it uniquely uh, uniquely digital. One of the things I've noticed in the last few
1: years. This does. This is not me just running off with a non sequitur, but there is a people who I know who are in their 60s and 70s who use computers a lot and use yeah. computers part of their daily life. Um, and then people I know in their 20s and 30s and often younger who use computers in their daily life is there is, on the one hand, the, the older <clears throat> generation of which I'm probably part of, although well, I'm not that old, <laughs> um, remember. Okay, we remember typewriters. We remember writing on paper. We remember we remember a kind of way in which this was new. This was kind of somehow strange and new, yeah. and we had to deal with that and make sense of that. Um, and we found ways around it. We wrote macros. We wrote, used Word Perfect. We we wrote in ways that I were, remember
0: Word Perfect. We wrote in ways
1: that we're not writing on paper. Yeah. Um, that we took because those early systems were not as, for me, not as kind of high bound and rigorous to a facsimile of paper that Word has become. And the, word.
0: It also has to, be, it has to be, it bears mentioning, and anybody who's been following discussions within um, the field of usability and u- user interface design, um, Donald Norman and um, um, Bruce Tog, um, mm-hmm. I, th- I can never pronounce um, Tog Nozzelli's, um last name properly, but he's usually called Tog. Uh, they are early pioneers in terms of user interface design. I think both worked for Apple um, early on. Mm-hmm. And one of the points they've been making is that software today is just much worse designed mm. than it used to be the yeah. uh, 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 the mac if, if if people our age have fond memories of how usable the mac was mm. that's because it was more usable apple yeah. at that time had a user interface lab that had a huge cultural say in how things were made they had very strict user interface guidelines and th- they were just literally better designed yeah so uh, and uh, uh, and at the same time they were new and people had to learn them from scratch they had to take it for what it is Mm. and so it's like uh, I had this exact conversation with my sister the other day Uh, we were talking about the fact that first of all um, software today is shit it's just it's just incredibly hard to navigate we are we are computer geeks we know Mm. exactly what we're doing and it's still bloody hard to navigate Um, and um, but we also have an appreciation for the history of things because we were there for the history of things mm. um, you know we've uh, you know we 've had to deal with dos uh, DOS machines we had to deal with uh, windows three uh, three point whatever it was that uh, that was the first windows environment we had to yeah. deal with the early macs we remember uh, the first modem we bought yeah we remember the first time um, uh, the internet was uh, was installed at either the local library or the local school yeah. And, you know, the first time we did an online chat with a stranger in a strange country, yeah. it sort of, um, and once it, when you see things evolve and grow around you, you are aware of the foundation it's built on because you were there when the foundation was laid down. Yeah. And um, um, we talk to people today, because we've now advanced to a stage where, where your primary computing device is the phone, mm. and it's both extremely badly designed. In terms of the software, the hardware is wonderful. It's mm. wonderfully sound hardware, but the user interface is is really bad and it's really limited in terms of what it can do, uh, the, its flexibility, its interactions. Um, the fact that um, the fact that on most for mobile phones at best you have a standard back button, but you do not have a standard undo button throughout mm. the entire interface. Is that undo should be the absolute heart of everything in computing. There should never be... You should never, because ever, of- ever be able to do an action in a computer that you can't undo. It should be impossible, completely and utterly impossible, but nowhere you can... You, most of the time when you use a phone, you can, I have no idea that there's a... That you could shake the phone to get an undo, mm. for example. And most of the time when you shake the phone to get an undo, it doesn't undo properly. You don't yeah. get the same text mm. back that you just deleted. Um, so it's like we are... Uh, and this is the this is the environment that that people are this is what people think computers are today yeah. and it's sort of without understanding what what else can be done we are sort of we are running the risk of, of losing a, a level a, a skill set mm. in designing usable um, systems in, in software and it's that thing from history that I'm worried that we're not quite remembering is possible.
1: Well, this is for me the flip side of working and working around people and remembering. I, yeah, you, like you, I remember the first email I sent when email was in a DOS command line. Um, <laughs> yeah. And yeah, that's kind of, that. I, I have a vivid thing. I remember exactly where I was sat and what that was. But the flip side of that, I think for a younger generation... Terrible word to use. Just people. Yeah, just but we're people. old. Just face it. No, we're not that old. Um, is that this? This is what McLuhan called um, information as air. Information as kind of yeah. the air you breathe, and you're completely immersed in it, and it's completely part of who you do. And that's astonishing to watch, and to be around. It's a really, really weird thing, and a really kind of interesting thing that the sharing of content, the the flexibility of content, the ways in which you, know, you and I try to describe what the book could be how, actually. We still describe it as an other, yeah. And there's a whole generation, there's a whole set of people who who, who don't see it as an other. They see it as actually that's what they do and that's how it works. Yeah, and that's kind of brilliant. But you're right because one of the things that we still have to offer in our dotage um, <laughs> is a memory of this of what this was supposed to be and how it was supposed to work and and kind of not in a kind of I don't want to say that in a nostalgic way or a bitter way or an angry way, but saying actually there are ways to build this stuff. There are ways to build interfaces and to build experiences and to build the ways in which, because this is about books and ways in which we yeah. do digital books, that are more about the potential of a technology rather than saying, rather than being satisfied with this is what we have and therefore this is how we've got to behave. Yeah. And, how got, and it's it's a rebellion. It, yeah, it may be a rebellious thing. It may be an anarchistic thing. But it's a no. Be damned to it. This ain't good enough. Yeah. And let's go back and do something different. And for me, this the second or third of things that annoy Tom. Um, Choose your own adventure.
0: Yes. Um,
1: which is not going to be a surprise. Maybe you were all having a game of, 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 of podcast drinking games where you, you don't get to down and drink until Tom mentions choose your own adventure. In which case, you can have the bottle now. Yeah. Um, is not that it's... I don't have a problem with choose your own adventure as a mechanism or as mm-hmm. a as an idea or as a, as a way of telling stories, as a way of dealing with content.
0: There's nothing inherently wrong with a the branching narrative. There's nothing inherently wrong in with branching
1: narrative. But... It becomes and has become the default way of engaging with this stuff. It's be, it's because it's the equivalent of there being no undo button for me. It's, yeah. it's that we accept this as a given, and that the first conversation with anybody—not anybody, but most people who are not kind of part of a development team or working in some way—is actually, oh, you are talking about future adventure?" <laughs> I had those books when I was a kid. All my kids had those books, or whatever else. And it becomes that, and that just that's incredibly frustrating it would be i don't know it's it's no that, i only have crap metaphors for this but it just it frustrates me and irritates me because the mechan, the mechanism of a branching narrative is incredibly interesting but to simply suggest that you can that somehow if we port a a storytelling system that worked entirely within print mm. and entirely on paper but also borrowed from okay um borrowed from a a way of telling stories that was relational that was immersive that was that was role-playing that was yeah, Dungeons and yeah. Dragons that what, what what COIA did COIA rather did in its early days was take that that system of there's a dungeon master and there are players and they're all playing characters mm. and take the dm out of it and say okay we don't need that we have a book that instead. yeah and that's where they built their use of that's where they built their kind of novelty base because people could people who couldn't who didn't necessarily have the time or whatever else to do more than one session of D D a a week suddenly had this thing you could do in your mean
0: well it's it, it, it was a way of getting a, a count steve jackson as your as your dungeon yeah, master yeah completely
1: and steve jackson was a brilliant story so was ian libby are yeah. them joe d for gary Short. They're, they're great at what they did but um that was the way it worked. And it worked in print because there was something fundamental about the print experience, about the book as a thing that you yeah. engage with. And for me, one of my consistent annoyances about Chujana Venture as a digital implementation is that it forgets that print does what print does.
0: Yeah.
1: And it forgets some of... And I've written a longer piece, which I'll probably just read out as a podcast. <laughs> um, but it... We forget that there is a, there's a there's a relationship between the story and the object and the way in which you read it and something about that. And that we lose certain aspects of that. We lose the tactility, the haptic nature. We lose the physical sense of the book when we translate it digital. It's not that losing it is a bad thing. It's that we don't replace it with anything interesting. Or we don't yeah. do something in that space necessarily that starts to define a different way of telling stories. So yeah, so Choose Your Adventure... You know, given this is about how we got here I think it's a huge marker and a hugely important marker but for me it gets overstressed, it gets over relied upon as a shorthand as um, Craig Maud, who has written brilliantly about every aspect, not every, but most aspects of publishing and, uh, and again is one of those people who don't do as I say, do as I do because he's yeah. prepared to put his money where his mouth is and to make stuff, talks about Choose Your Adventure as the lowest hanging fruit
0: yeah, it's, it's the easiest
1: yeah. one to pick, and it is the easiest one to pick because your funder will recognize it, your project manager will recognize it because they're of the age, they remember it, and it's there. And you make something, and frankly, unless you're brilliant, and there are people who are brilliant at this out there, it's it's going to annoy me if not anybody else. Yeah. Anyway, so but yeah. it's
0: it's just also just most of the time it's just not that much fun no. to be honest. No, it's not. And it's sort of um, one of the things. That, um, if you look at the history of of like we're doing, uh, the history of interactive media, one of the things that interactive media has done really well, well, basically two things. Games is uh, one thing Mm. that we've we've covered a lot. It's really good. Interactive media is really good at the tight feedback loop between action and consequences that you iterate on and you escalate that into skills and games and play. The other thing that um, uh, interactive media is really good at uh, is um, exploration. Exploring a space and 2 adventure is not that. It's basically nope. just you're going down predefined paths. It is a an expansion of linear storytelling. It's not uh, an alternative to it. No, it's not. An um, mm. And that's why, for example, I think one of the biggest, most interesting antecedents to uh, modern interactive media, even though you know we don't might not want to uh, replicate that specifically, but it's a huge in- influence on, on a lot of what a lot of people are doing. That's um Interactive, um, uh, interactive storytelling, interactive text, mm. um, where you're, you know, you you well, yeah. you've got a space and you you type, you know, open door, go west, yeah. and you know, you open chest, look under the bed, um, mm. find a secret map, yep. um, you know, it's, um, and there it 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 got game like um, mm. for a lot of them, but for for most most of the time when you're playing those things, you were not doing that to to basically play a game you are going there because you're exploring space yeah. um, you're exploring Titanic or you're exploring, mm. you know it, and you know there were, there were a lot of really really interesting spaces there that mm. people made and I think that's exploration is one of those things that, that defining it's also the heart of what hypertext is yeah. Yeah, and hypertext is basically you're just laying out a space of text that mm. you can explore through and you know, hypertext is kind of the heart of my criticism of um, e-books is that mm. you can't do hypertext properly in an ebook because yeah. it boils everything down to a linear order. Yeah, um, mm. And that's just... If, if you're boiling a hypertext down into a linear series of, uh, a, a of texts, you've broken the hypertext. You've broken, you've broken you've, the mode. You've, you've, broken you've, the mode. Not only just, you've not just broken it, you've put it down onto the street and run over it several times with a Range Rover. <laughs> Uh, you know, it's it's it. You, you're completely missing the point, and it's uh, when you try. Uh, and the skin whenever I try to explain this, I just get blank stares back, and it's. Like, I, I don't know if I'm just bad at explaining it. It's It's not linear. It's just. Mm. And you know, it's, it's it's like when the English are traveling abroad, and uh, you know, um and they meet somebody who doesn't know English, and they say uh, they say, oh no no, he doesn't understand. He doesn't uh, does know English. English. Their response is to lean in, and shout. Do you understand? Do you know where? And it's my sort of response to people who don't get that is linear just basically lean in and say it louder. And obviously that isn't helping. It's sort of, clearly it isn't helping because most people don't have a clue. Still just stare blankly back. Yeah. Um,
1: and on that, and just to, Come back to exploration and things that we. This is not just about the history; it's just about the past. But projects that mm-hmm. and one of the things I think does deserve a mention at some point in this whole kind of run of doing talking about digital is is Rob Sherman's Black Crown. Remind me. So, um okay, let's let, let's do. We're, we're going to make people mm-hmm. in publishing who, if they're listening to this, are going to feel like yeah, oh, boy, they know our names. Anyway, <laughs> names. So Dan Franklin at um, Random House before Random House became Penguin Random House um, commissioned Danny's. Um, Random House is now a digital publisher and Dan commissioned Rob Sherman who I think at that point was fresh out of a master's in creative writing from Exeter who turned up, as I remember the story going, with a suitcase full of stuff <laughs> full of bits and things that were part of this world he'd invented and and through a long convoluted series of, um, I'm sure, very high-powered meetings, because Dan's very good at this um, Black Crown was born. Black Crown is was a mechanically I'm doing it a disservice here but mechanically a hypertext exploration of a space oh cool but curated Rob, yeah. Rob wrote the thing as it went along and Rob wrote the thing as it emerged so incredibly surreal incredibly I mean not Lynchian because that's a shorthand I use far too much but it reminded me of delicatessen it reminded me of kind oh. of um that very surreal left of centre, but completely weird. Yeah. Deliberately... Not deliberately weird for weird's sake, but kind of a lot of stuff that um, Charlie Mieville and Jeff Vandermeer um, and Thomas Lee the, got... The new weird. The, yeah. the weird as a fictional mode.
0: Well, it's sort of when you... Honestly, managed to re- uh, to present a new perspective on reality that mm. is inevitably weird because yeah. that's what it is.
1: And, and my recollection of, of, of experiencing Black Crown, and I didn't play didn't play read. There's a conversation about what do we call people who do this. Um, the whole thing all the way through, but is that it? F- it felt like you were exploring a space you had no understanding of. There were there were there mm. were some references, there were some abstractions, but you were genuinely properly exploring and you're trying to figure your way through it. And for me, one of, one of the joys of seeing that was it felt much like what you were describing as interactive fiction.
0: Yeah.
1: It wasn't a branching hypertext, although I'm sure there are branching hypertexts in there. And Rob, we'll get Robbie to talk about it at some point. <laughs> Everybody will come to my kitchen and talk about their projects. I kind of like If this. we're lucky. If we're lucky. If we're lucky. Out a and if they're lucky. And if, obviously, they're lucky. <laughs> but it felt like exploring a space. And for me, there was, there was something that obviously called back to interactive fiction and Nick Montfort's book on this is brilliant but interactive fiction as a mode as a way of exploring it called back to a kind of an alternative to choose your own adventure Mm. of thinking about this as a space to things like mist yeah as a as a world in which to be explored but to be but to be kind of guided and and guided through by a writer who was committed to writing this and it was put out by random house who are massive Mm. and that for me i've dan and i have you know had moments where we disagree about the funding of this or whatever else you do but I'm still in awe of the fact that got made and it got made and supported and put out there and I think it's just a huge shame that that was a thing and Rob has gone on to do stuff with the British Library and to do interesting stuff and will go on and should go on to do really major stuff but yeah that project for me is one of those kind of models of if this is about how did we get here it's one of those things that you can point out and go there is a lineage here yeah there's a lineage that that the producer understood the editor the commissionator understood there is a lineage that absolutely the writer understood and there's a lineage that that sort of taps into something that the audience got as well but mm. it was one of the things we talked about last time was the the tendency in publishing to use existing text to rework something that's there already because you know you've got a they love
0: adaptations it. of
1: course adaptations because it's safe and it's it's kind of not mm. scary and this stuff can be scary although it shouldn't
0: be scary we know this story appeals to people so the digital adaptation of it must appeal must to, them and as it well.
1: to everybody else and, it was great to see something that was completely new. Yeah, that was be that was a proper original piece of fiction, and whether it kind of completely, liked, I almost don't care whether it completely worked. I yeah. like that it was, it had the the backbone and the strength
0: of its own convictions to make something and to see where it would go. I mean, it sort of it t- it ties into as well one of the things that we've talked about a lot in the past, although not on this podcast, but we talked about it a lot is that the risk of. The love that publishing has of large projects, mm. as in you make some, you work on something for maybe two years and you release it to the world, and it's just a huge risk to, yeah. uh, you know, have every uh, uh, two years of worth of work to hinge on this single artifact, yeah. which mm. may sink or not, um, and it's sort of, uh, sort of I, I just wonder whether. If, you'd, if they'd committed to building this world over the same... I mean, if it took the same amount of time to build it, so mm. let's say it took a year and be yeah. generous, uh, and instead of, doing, of spending a year building it and then, you know, two weeks releasing it and promoting it, what if they had been building it for the same amount of time as a website, mm. online, directly in public? You know, how much more of a momentum would it have by the end of that year... With the uh, and you probably have exactly the same sort of artifact at the end of it. You'd have mm. this explorable world. You might even be able to just do, you know, do a boil it down to an app yeah. at the end of the year and sell that. Um, but you'd have much less risk because you'd be building awareness and participation. You'd be, be building a community for several months before you actually uh, before you actually release something. And it minimises mm. risk. And it, I just it, it, I think it's a bit crazy how. Existing uh, sort of priorities within the publishing industry tend to magnify risk rather than rather mm. reduce it.
1: And it, it's, we mentioned, I mentioned Craig Maud um, 10 15 minutes ago, however long this podcast is, and it's already running longer mm. than we thought it would. Mm. Um, but one of one of the essays, and Craig, I think Craig is one of those people who is quoted a lot, and I worry that people never actually read what he says. <laughs> Yeah. Um, or properly read it because what he says often is
0: difficult and it's complicated yeah. and it's scary. It's a bit like Tad Nelson. People, yeah. tend, to, people tend to quote <clears throat> him and refer to him but, but they I don't actually sat down and
1: read him. I actually read
0: him or talked to him and kind of figured it all out
1: and one of the things one of the essays that Craig wrote and I think it's I'm right in saying it's the essay it's called Post Digital Publishing Yeah, talks about this very thing that you're describing mm-hmm. that, because one of the I think one of the ways we talked about disruption a little bit last time one of the ways that we, we think about I think you and I think about this is that this is not this is not just about a different object at the end of it yeah that can be and maybe should be part of it that we think about the form and the content behaving differently but it can be about the means of creation it can be about the way it's put together and the way you bring an audience in and for writers and for publishing companies and for anybody in that chain of content creation actually thinking of the means of production as having changed and the ways in which you engage your audience having changed. And one of the things that Craig talks about in that is, is a kind of post-artifact model in which you do bring in your audience much yeah. earlier. And you make them part of this, and you they see a kind of iterative involvement and an iterative, iterative creation of something that, as you're right, that completely occurs over time. But what you're doing is is bringing... It's, it's a Kickstarter model, mm. fundamentally. It's, it's, it's a Patreon model. It's, it's, it's saying that, you know, you trust me enough, you will come along with us, we will expose it all, partly warts and all and you'll test it and be tested and fingers crossed what you'll get is if not a better product at the end you'll get a better bought in audience mm. at the
0: end I mean it's it's basically it's a way of treating the book the printed book as a digital artefact rather mm. than a Print artifact it, because it, it's, it's, yeah. it, it becomes something that 's a consequence of a digital process, rather a truly digital process that involves community and iteration and everything rather than before, where it's, it's, it is still a product of a completely print process yeah. and this ties mm-hmm. into the reason why ebooks are a facsimile or a parody of book because ebooks are a digital artifact. Which are actually a consequence of a print process, yeah. so they mm. they're not really a digital artifact. They're mm. a print mm. artifact that happens to exist digitally, mm. and the, yeah, but but that means that there is a flip side to that. You can actually have a print artifact that is uh, that is a, a product of a digital process, yeah. and um, so, you know that that becomes a completely different flavor of book, even though yeah. it looks like a. Um, a regular book, and you know, and all that, and it's um, the startup called um, Find My Name, which is a, mm. makes children's books that are, are, are dynamically created. But it's a print artifact that is a, a product of a digital world. Mm. Um, so it's even when we're talking about about focusing on digital, the, we, people forget that digital is is a bit of a Borg-like thing from the from Star Trek. It tends to assimilate everything everything that's next to it. In that it can, you can accommodates print and real life and locations and everything that within a digital context um if you want to you don't have to but if you can if you want to you can you you have the option of of pulling those in um so yeah that's the but yeah we could probably talk about the um you know physical objects and print as an artifact of digital for hours on end so it's hmm. Probably a topic for for another podcast. I think.
1: I think, and I think that's probably where we're going to lead this one now, is that there's things for other podcasts. Um, but yeah, okay.
0: Yeah, sounds okay. like I'm getting hungry anyway.
1: Okay, well, in which case, if, if you're listening to this now, we're going to go and make dinner. <laughs> See, it's life in the kitchen.
0: Excellent. I knew there was a reason for it.